He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We are glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. In a little bit, I'll read from uh, the book of Galatians. Before I do, I kind of want to set it up. You see, uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul spends a lot of time talking to the Galatians about the grace of God and comparing it to what is called the law. And what happens, I feel like if I don't kind of give a little background, it just leads to me overgeneralizing what the law is and what he's talking about, or uh, at least it's just not uh, understanding and skipping over it. But uh, to, to talk about it today, I think I kind of want to go back and uh, think about uh, some of the sermons I've preached before. Yes, you have to remember what I say each and every week. <laughs> um, and so uh, uh, I remember a, a few series ago, I did a series on what, what the sacrifices were about. And we use that to talk about the sacrifice of the Old Testament. We use that to talk about what Jesus does on the cross. We use that to talk about the sacrifices that we give before God as well. But one of the things that we did when we looked at uh, the history of the sacrifices, like we went to probably one of like the most boring passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. We went to Leviticus, where it detailed like how they are to do all those sacrifices. Remember that? But yet, what we learned is that those that the whole sacrificial system was um, was was them trying to um, to be worthy of to be honored, to be in the presence of a holy God. That the height of their religious faith was to be close to God. That this was their desire to draw near to Him. For God had promised to be with them. God had, uh, according to um, uh, Genesis, God had dwelled with Adam and Eve at the beginning. According to Exodus, God had, had led them out of Egypt with, a, with smoke and with fire by night so they could get to the promised land. And then God was dwelling in their temple. And the sacrifice were an attempt to draw near and closer and closer to where God was. They were an attempt to be worthy of being with Him, that God would continue to bless them as a people and as a nation with His presence and with His grace. In fact, I think, if I had to think of the greatest honor of distinction given to anyone in the Old Testament, we have some great kind of, you know, people who are like, uh, elevated and with, held to great esteem. You have Abraham, considered the father of all the people. Father Abraham, gr- held in great esteem. You have Moses, uh, the one who leads them out in the Exodus, the great leader. And he, of course, the giver of the law and just held in high esteem. King David, who uh, drives out the nations around them to help establish themselves as a nation, is called a man after God's own heart. What a great, great compliment. But I think the greatest honor of distinction in the Old Testament is actually to the prophet Elijah. The one who we just read about is saying, God, I'm all on my own. I'm the last one. There is nobody here who still follows you. But yet later on, what the Scriptures will say is, God will take him up to the heavens and he will get to be with God. You see, this is the greatest honor because this has always been their desire to be able to get to know and be with the God who created this world, the God who has promised to be with us. Their whole, the whole point is, can we get closer to God? Can we be with God? 
And the law, the Old Testament, is the way in which they tried to place themselves to be worthy of being in God's presence, worthy of being called God's people. There were terms for this in the Scriptures, terms like holiness, terms like clean, terms like set apart. And so ways in which they said, hey, we are different from the rest of the world. We are worthy of being in the presence of God or trying to be, hoping to be, that if God would sanctify the gift, if God would, would uh, be forgiven, that we could perhaps through our various faith, acts of faithfulness draw near to God. But through, throughout their history, something unique happens. On their way to exile, this is after their nation is defeated and people are carried off to Babylon, something happens. The, the, the temple where they were sacrificing, the temple where all of their practices to draw near to God took place it is absolutely destroyed. And they are endangered as a unique people dedicated to God because they don't have that place of worship anymore. They don't have the very methods described in Scripture of sacrifice to draw near to God available to them anymore. And so they're wondering how are they going to continue as a people in this exile. And they, and they record and they preserve all of those laws and they preserve their history. And that history and those laws are called the Torah. And it is elevated as, as the very tangible reminder of who they are, who they are called to be, and how they are supposed to live. And it becomes the primary distinguishing mark of the people of God. This, this law, this, this Torah, it is the primary distinguishing mark of their faith because they don't have the temple anymore. So their faithfulness is wrapped up in the law, that the Hebrew name Torah. Usually refers primarily to the first five books of the Bible, but they will end up, of course, uh, uh, have, providing for us the rest of the Old Testament. But these books are about their identification as the people of God and the laws by which they could live this out. And so with that history, you see indeed how important it was for them to uh, have, have this, this book available to them and read to them. And it became, when they returned, a big part of their worship. But this desire to be with God, this desire indeed to draw near to Him, has always been a part of their faith. In fact, that what happened to Elijah became a part of the narrative of, of maybe someone like Elijah would come again. Maybe there will be someone who comes from God who will be like Elijah and help pave the way for the one who will really draw us closer to God. And so began this, this, this history, this tradition of expecting Elijah. And we hear that in the story of John the Baptist. You heard that in the, in the, in the gospel reading today where some people wondered, is Jesus that person? And what happens to Jesus in his life as he kind of shows what God wants for them uh, and how they could live, and there's miracles that seem to indicate, okay, God seems to be at work here, what's happening? But then He's crucified. And it seems like all is done until the resurrection changes everything. First, the resurrection legitimizes Jesus' life and His message. A message that showed love to the entire world, showed love and forgiveness to sinners, and reminded us that the law... The law that had been elevated for all this time was given to us to help us serve God and not just so that we would have something else to serve. 
The law was given to help us try to draw closer to God, not so that we would become enslaved to it. The way Jesus would say it when He was questioned about Him healing on the Sabbath or His disciples doing stuff on the Sabbath, He would say, man or humanity is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for humanity. In other words, it is the, the Sabbath, the day of rest, is a gift of God to us and not just an extra law for us to follow. So the question they're facing after the resurrection, particularly among the faithful followers of God, the Jewish faithful, is what does this mean theologically if if Jesus is raised from the dead and, and everything He said about His special relationship with God and how He interacted with even the non-Jewish people and how He interacted with sinners. And what does this mean? And if Jesus is raised from the dead... That's unusual too because it means God was pleased to work with that crucified one. The one who was supposedly initially brought up on charges for blasphemy against God. The one who according to the law was hung from a cross. And so according to law should be considered cursed. But if God raises this one from the dead, then where's the curse? This one who's been crucified, dead, and buried, as the creed goes, nonetheless, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is breathed back into that body. God is pleased to enter into, to dwell in the corpse of this Jesus. A corpse. According to the law, corpses are cursed, unclean things. You get near one of those, you can't even draw near to the temple. You can't draw near to God. Theologically, not only does the resurrection validate Jesus' entire life and mission, but it also forces us and it forced them to take seriously that there are no longer distinctions of clean and unclean people. Indeed, there are no longer distinctions of privileged people. There's no race, there's no people that have a unique place before God because we found in Jesus that He was extending God's grace to everyone. And indeed, it's even extended to Him. And so this is where Paul is going in Galatians. I have to say all this because I'm jumping in the middle of Galatians. But the first couple chapters of Galatians is really just Paul kind of giving his authority of why he's able to talk to them. He says who he is as an apostle. He says how he's been called into ministry. And so he kind of does a whole lot of foundation work of saying why he's writing this letter in the first place. And so so we didn't need to start there. But he wants to talk to the Galatians because they are laying out terms. If you want to join the church, if you want to become a Christian, there are things you have to do. And they say to the Gentiles, which is a fancy word for those who aren't Jewish yet, You have to become Jewish if you want to become a Christian. And so there are things you have to do. Things like get circumcised if you're a male. Or you have to eat all your meat well done and you can't have bacon. (laughs) I don't know which one's worse. (laughs) Uh, And so so they say you can't have this. Uh, And you can't unless you ascribe to these kind of things. So Jen, thanks for the bacon this morning, but I would not have been able to have that. Uh, and so, so they, you know, this, is, this, is, this is part of what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Is this really what we're going to do? Is this really what we're going to say? You have to become like us. And so there is this reminder that, that the law was supposed to help us order our lives to honor God, but was not meant to become a requirement, not meant to replace God. 
It is just a tool by which we, we draw near to the God who is already drawn near to us. In a way, uh, Paul is going to say in Galatians, you're kind of putting the cart before the horse. The whole purpose was we want to desire, we desire to draw near to the God who created us. Right, go back to that sacrifice sermon series. We want to draw near to the God who's created us. And one of the ways in which we figure out some way we might try to do that is by following the law. But what happened is it got elevated because of different historical circumstances. It gets elevated and all of a sudden this becomes the defining factor. This becomes the end of life rather than a relationship drawing near to God. I think pop theology kind of puts the cart before the horse too. Popular theology, that is, that which you could find anywhere. Basically, the general thought is this, right? Heaven is a reward. God loves everybody. Therefore, heaven is a reward for everybody. That's kind of pop theology. Heaven's a reward, and because God loves everyone, heaven's a reward for everyone, right? That would be fair. That would be indicative of a loving God. So that's kind of the thought. But biblical theology is this. Heaven is where God is. And God, who lives in the heavens, God is pleased to dwell with us. And He wants to welcome us into His holy presence. And so the question is, how does that happen? And what we find in Scripture is Jesus, the only one who is holy, and the perfect representation of humanity, He enters into heaven. He ascends into heaven after the resurrection. And Jesus says that everything the Father has shared with Him, He shares with us. We talked about that on Trinity Sunday, right? Everything the Father has shared, He is sharing with us. And so all of humanity enters into the privileges of the benefits of Jesus. That that, that what Elijah and Jesus experienced will be ours, the resurrection and being with God. Therefore, faith in Jesus is how we enter into the presence of God for all eternity. We get to be with our Creator. We get to be with our God. Heaven, ultimately, is not just about rewards, although there's all kinds of benefits to heaven, right, that are listed in the Scriptures. But heaven is ultimately, we get to join with and be with our Creator, the God who has loved us and been with us. And that is the point, and that is the purpose, and this is why Jesus is so important for us. So Paul will end up saying to them, the law began sharing with us how we might come to uh, be prepared to draw into the presence of God. But Jesus has shown us that all that preparation has already been made. Or as we sang in that last song, that purchase has already been made. Here we are in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, We were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have been clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I want to I start with those first few verses I read, verses 23 to 25. Before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. The law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. 
so that we are justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a disciplinarian. Uh, if you were looking at perhaps your pew Bible, or if you were looking uh, uh, at a different translation, that, that understanding of being imprisoned or uh, being guarded, uh, the word there could also be translated in custody. If you were in custody. Now, normally when I think of being in custody, I think of being imprisoned. <laughs> I think, okay, okay, if you're in custody, you're in the custody of the state, you are locked down, you are stuck. Now, Paul has a little bit more favorable view of the law than this. He doesn't just think of it as, as this, this tormenting oppressor that's holding you back. Uh, so, so there's a part of it that kind of thinks that uh, as much as uh, I, I've started using the NRSV because I like the way it usually translates, I think I, think I kind of like custody just a little bit better. Because custody also can mean just someone who takes care of another. And so even here he uses the word guardian and he'll use the word disciplinarian twice. And I can't help but think of maybe the term custodial guardian. Someone who takes care of someone while they are in need. Someone who helps them when they're not able to uh, uh, help themselves. Someone who's preparing you for life. Someone who might not be in charge of you forever, but someone who is making sure you can get to the next stage you need to get to. And, And so Paul is saying now that we're under this faith, there is no longer a custodial guardian. There is no longer this disciplinarian. Even this word disciplinarian is... Uh, it is a Greek word, that it, it is, it's a pedagogue. Now, that's a weird term, but uh, Jan, one of the things she's had to do over the last year as a teacher is she has had to show and, and talk about with other professors her pedagogical method. That is, how she teaches her students and makes sure that they learn what she has to teach. And, and the method and the, and the strategies used in that is pedagogy. It is teaching. And so what he is saying is the law has functioned as this kind of teacher, this disciplinary in some phrases, because of the pedagogue and the early Greeks, they, they were the ones who were in charge of the children to help raise them and to help them become adults and to help them learn how to live life. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe a modern day way of looking at it would be a daycare, a daycare teacher, <laughs> someone who's raising children. Someone who's helping them because there wasn't a formal education back then. I remember I had a, I had a history class uh, in high school, and the professor, very passionate about education, uh, could, uh, uh, he was a history professor, and he said, you know what I think the 20th century is going to be known for? He's saying this at the end of the 20th century. He says, I think centuries, decades down the road, what the 20th century is going to be known for, be famous for is this, education. Education. Of course, he's an educator. He's going to say that. But no, no, no. But he really believed this. He said in the early 20th century, you had children working in factories in the Industrial Revolution. And then they said, we can't have that. We need to get them in schools. And there was this national education drive where kids have to be educated. He says that wasn't always this. Yeah, sometimes there, you know, there were schools that were before that that existed. But, you know, kids would sometimes still end up working in the factories or working on the farms and not be educated, right? So, like, you can look at some uh, old records, and I remember seeing like, a, uh, seeing, like, a census record that asked my answers, you know, whether they were literate. You know, like, like, like this is just a part of it. So think 2,000 years ago. There was no public education system like we had now. So what they would do is they would have adults or people who worked for them who were in charge of raising and educating the children. The Greek word for that were pedagogues. And so he says, this is the function of the law. 
The law was like this teacher, this one who is helping us know how to live and honor God until we get and mature and go to where God is leading us. And, and where, what the, where the law is pointing is to Jesus Christ. That ultimately we are to find that the law has been showing that Jesus Christ is the one whom we are to follow and have faith in. So all this means, yeah, they, those who don't adhere entirely to the law, that's okay. For the Galatians in particular, it meant we don't have to make them adhere to all the rules of circumcision or of not or eating meat a certain way. And then he uses the imagery of, of baptism in verse 27. He says, he says to them, as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. Let me tell you a little bit more history about baptism. Baptism was done in the nude. Uh, yeah, it was weird. Wait, what? What? Um, you see, back then, public bathing was the thing, right? The fountains in the cities were often like public baths as well. Olympics were done in the nude. Nudity was just not as considered as immodest as it is Today And so uh, it was much more prevalent and in, in, uh, the public bathing and shower, not really showering, but bathing was a part of the thing. And then so even in the church, what they would do is they would take off the old clothes and it symbolized taking off the old self, the old way of life, and they would go into the baptismal waters and the baptism being laid back into the water is a symbol of dying to the old self then of being buried as you go underneath the water, and then being raised to life as Jesus was raised to life. And then afterwards, they would put on a new white robe, a new outfit that was a symbol of putting on the grace of Christ and the purity that comes through faith. And so this was the symbol. So when Paul says to them, says to them, you have clothed yourself with Christ, he's referring to this church right of, you have gone through this whole system of recognizing, of confessing that who you once were has died. And now because of your faith, Christ has made you new. We do that a little bit today. Babies, when they're baptized, will wear all white. Whenever I baptize them, I give them a brand new white towel because, you know, in our culture and and uh, rightfully so, we no longer baptize in the nude, and I'm glad for that. But uh, <laughs> nobody needs that. And, so, uh, and so, uh, so, so here he says, hey, you have been clothed in Christ. Who you once were is now redefined by the grace that comes in Jesus Christ. This is the imagery of baptism Paul uses to remind them. You're baptized saying you've died to the sins of old, the grace Forgiveness and unity with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not through any other method. The one who was ascended to heaven, who is the perfect expression of love and human faithfulness to God. This is Jesus Christ. So when he says clothed with Christ, they remember this symbol means there is no other sacrifice. There is no other observance of the law which told or tells us how to be holy to be ready for the presence of God or to, be lo uh, or, or to be found anywhere else other than located in Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, for the Galatians, he's telling them basically things like circumcision doesn't matter. 
He's going to say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. This hereditary or cultural distinction of who you are and what you've been through, God's grace puts equal footing. There is no one group that gets to claim they are better. There's no one group that gets to say we're more deserving of God's grace than any other. He says there is no more distinction when it comes to God's grace. When he says there's neither slave nor free, he's saying it does not matter the mistakes of the past. You see, back in that time also, slaves weren't always born into slavery. That is something much more in modern day slavery. Slaves were often, in the first century, short-term decisions based on mistakes of the past. I've messed up, I've run out of money, I've lost everything, some have to get my footing, and so they would, in a sense, indenture themselves. They would become slaves to a master who would then uh, have them be slaves for a period of time until they were released. When he says there is no slave or free, he's saying, hey, when you've seen that someone has royally messed up their life and they're reaping the consequences of it, there is no room for us to say, well, they deserve it. Or I told you so. There's no longer slave nor free. God's grace is for that one too. Nor is there male and female. In in the past, uh, this this phrase was often uh, uh, used during a women's suffrage to to remind ourselves that there is no uh, uh, there is no greater gender either. There's no uh, that there can be equal rights for all. It's a way of saying it doesn't matter how uh, how you are created. If God created you, there is grace for you. He says we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all heirs of Abraham. And that comes not from a genealogical record, but from a faith record in Jesus Christ. And so the question might be, well, why Jesus? Why are we all one in Him? After all, Jesus was a Jew, He wasn't a slave, and he was male. I mean, he at least fits certain boxes of those ones that he says doesn't matter. How do all those other groups get in? And once once again, it comes back to the theological points that Paul is making and the theological thinking we have to do about what is taking place if indeed grace comes through Jesus Christ. If we are willing to take into account what happens on the cross and the Lord's raising of that one, the crucified one. When Jesus is crucified, He is utterly abased, humiliated, destroyed. There is nothing that we can say, oh, but He's still got something though. This isn't like, uh, this isn't, there, is, there is no majesty, there is no beauty left. Rejected by the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus is enslaved not by his own sins, but by the sins of others enacted against him, pinning him to the boards of that cross. Indeed, he is stripped of any privilege, any power, or any influence that might possibly be had by his time in in his culture, by his employment, or by his gender roles, so that what ends up hanging on that cross is nothing short of of the most pathetic excuse for a human being. And if this one, the one who, Paul will say, made himself nothing, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, if that one 
might be exalted by God to the highest place, given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Then there is no more distinctions for God's grace. Then it means God's forgiveness is available forever. It means God is still desiring to share heaven with all of creation and is still beckoning us to enter into his presence. And it is available for everyone. It means everyone has opportunity to be with God. And there is no law that can undermine the grace shown in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No law whatsoever. So where does that put us? On one hand, I think it puts us as a place, as a people who are gracious and need to be gracious. As a people who need to recognize that God's love might surprise us where God's love is willing to go. It means as a people, we don't create hurdles before others. We say, oh, you've got to measure up this way or you have to do that thing before you can believe or be a proper follower of God. We can't put hurdles before people. We might be surprised where God is willing to move. This is Paul's message to the Galatians. We are a people who then also need to live faithfully into the promise of God. If indeed, through Jesus Christ, God has said, I'm available and I love you and I have a plan and a future for you. We now receive that with thankfulness, with humility, and then with faithfulness with how we go forward in our life. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that uh, as we hear this, that we hear the gospel, that this is why we confess who Jesus is. This is why we talk about heaven. This is why we talk about our God and His love. is because He has said and done at all times throughout history, I want to be with my people, with my creation. And He has done everything He can through the person of Jesus Christ to make that possible and to welcome us in with faith. As we get ready to go to prayer today, let us go before our God, asking that uh, He would indeed be real in our life. And there's something in our life that we need to bring before Him. And say, God, I need you to forgive this. Or, Heavenly Father, I need you to overcome this wall. Let us bring that before Him today. And let us see and be amazed at how God is still working among us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your love and your grace. I want to thank you that uh, you surprise us, that you absolutely surprise us by uh, how steadfast and faithful you are to us. Lord, I thank you that uh, you have loved us when we have been far away from you, when we had no desire to follow you, when we didn't even know who you were. When we were to use a word from Scripture, Gentiles, Lord, you are asking us and welcoming us in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for forgiving and loving us when we were so estranged, when we turned our back on you, when we were uh, uh, living by our own power and our own strength rather than by you, when we were slaves to our sin, yet, Lord, you offered by the power of your Spirit, you offered forgiveness, you offered strength. You have offered, indeed, your grace into that as well. And so, Heavenly Father, I thank you that there is no distinction between slave and free, for you have loved us even then. And, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us as you have made us. And, Heavenly Father, I pray and I hope 
that we will take who we are and bring it before you in full fidelity and faithfulness. For Heavenly Father, you are worthy, you are holy, and it is our desire, Lord, to be faithful to the one who has invited us into his presence. Thank you again for loving us. Help us to love you with our lives. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve him today.